He mentioned that you might have grown up with the Jackson 5. Is this true, Michael White? Yes, it is. Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a film production junior working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film, TV and content professionals to help demystify and democratise the industries for juniors and fans alike. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest is hair designer to the stars, Michael White. With over 30 incredible years in the business, spent working on shows such as David Fincher's Seven and Tom Ford's A Single Man, Michael has certainly seen it all, most notably through his long-standing relationship as personal stylist to Tom Cruise, with whom he has worked on eight movies together. Michael, it's so great to have you on the show, and I know you're going to have some incredible stories and advice for our listeners. Thank you for being here. Uh, You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, I like to first ask my guests, because everybody has parents, what did your parents do, and did it affect your career choices later in life? Um, I was handed a comb uh, out of the birth canal. Uh, My father was a hairdresser. My uncle was a hairdresser. And then my stepbrother became a hairdresser. So when I grew up uh, and I reached the age maybe about seven, when I was able to understand what pushing a broom was all about, I used to be able to earn a quarter by going in at the end of the day before my dad got done with work and my mom would head down to pick him up that I would sweep the salon and my dad would pay me a quarter. So that was basically my five-day-a-week job uh, from six or seven on. So my, uh, I, to me, uh, growing up in that business was part of my, my life. I really uh, knew that was the only thing I knew. And um, uh, my father was, you know, um, very much a trendsetter and a leader in uh, the profession at that time. So uh, not knowing that I would I would follow in his footsteps. But as they say, the apples don't fall far from the tree. So was he very proud then that you've gone on to such great success within the, the hair profession? It was kind of, he was kind of, uh, my father was Austrian. He went from Austria, from Vienna to London, and then London to Los Angeles in the late 30s. When he was living in London, he became friends with Vidal Sassoon. We had a, uh, I I don't know if it would be a great, great uncle or a great uncle who was a hairstylist in Vienna. I kind of followed the same pattern as my father kind of was doing as a child. And, uh, you know, as it kind of built into the, into the, into uh, my career building up and helping him going to beauty school, there's a story in there. He, when I said to him, you know, Hey, I just got, I just came back from London and, you know, uh, or I, or I flew him down to spend a month with me when I was doing total recall in Mexico city. And he would kind of like, you know, uh, get a kick out of it. And Arnold Schwarzenegger would be making him a little Wiener schnitzel and <laughs> talking Viennese with him. And as my dad got older, he uh, used to vicariously live his life through me. There's so much history. You know, I wanted to write a book called Hollywood Was My Playground. So I haven't gotten there yet. But uh, 
there's so much. And my dad uh, used to believe that in hairstyling, you are only as good as your last haircut. And you are, you have to be uh, always on top of everything. And uh, he was always a mentor, even till the day he died. He always gave me great advice. That's beautiful. I was wondering, is, you mentioned Hollywood there as your playground. Was that where you were growing up in the barbershop? My dad, uh, if people are not familiar, they're in Los Angeles, there's the San Fernando Valley. And in the San Fernando Valley, there is a very famous main boulevard called Ventura Boulevard. And if you went to Los Angeles today and you went to Ventura Boulevard, it is packed with buildings. You have Studio City, Universal Studios up on the hill where the tours are. If you go the other way, we have a famous place called Warner Center. There's the Calabasas Commons where the Kardashians hang out <laughs> and all the, you know, quote unquote, uh, young social media uh, A-list people. And then you go from there and you're in Malibu. Well, in the day that my dad settled into the valley uh, where we lived in Encino, California, which was off of Ventura Boulevard, there was really no buildings and a lot of oak trees and orange groves and my dad uh, opened up the first hair salon on Ventura Boulevard. So that's kind of where the history goes back to where I grew up in, where kind of everything uh, kind of blossomed from. So uh, my dad wa uh, was kind of like a catalyst to a lot of hairdressers that became very famous. They had worked for my father. Uh, John Peters, who became a producer, he was married to Barbara Streisand, wow. uh, was the Vidal Sassoon of uh, Los Angeles. Um, you had Alan Edwards, who was Farrah Fawcett's hairdresser for my father, and then opened up Alan Edwards. And then there was Jerry Cosenza, who worked for my father, who created the Sebastian International Line. So my dad really was you know, a, uh, it seems like he was a home base for a lot of people that broke out from that, from that period, which he would say is mainly, uh, I would say the sixties. He sounds like he was an incredible mentor to those people. What did you learn from him? Uh, it's nice to be important, but so much important to be nice. I have a lot of remember, uh, memories of what people told me, but my father used to believe that today's peacock was tomorrow's feather duster. So he used to always feel that if he surrounded himself with people that were uh, younger than him or better than him, he would be number one himself and his business would be number one. You mentioned Encino, California there, and I've had a tip from my producer and I've got to ask it and a million questions come to mind. So I'm just going to let you speak. He mentioned that you might have grown up with the Jackson 5. Is this true, Michael White? Yes, it is. <laughs> the Jackson Five, I, uh, as if you look in their history, came from Gary, Indiana, and moved to Los Angeles. And at that time, Encino was a very small community. It, it, the, the, the hills of, the, of uh, the valley had not been built up yet. And they uh, had a, uh, moved into a house that was right off Ventura Boulevard on Havenhurst Avenue, and they had these huge gates. And you would go back about a, uh, maybe a football field and you'd go into this huge property. So uh, at the high school, 
uh, junior high, high school that I went to, one day these guys showed up. You know, in those days, you only knew the Jackson Five as Ed Sullivan and, you know, all of these shows that they would be on and uh, ABC. And, you know, uh, it was more very kind of like where when we grew up, it was the Beatles and, you know, different type of groups. So here comes this, you know, Motown. Yeah. And Barry Gordy, who was the owner of Motown, moved into Encino. So there was kind of a group of them that kind of settled in there. So when they kind of started, there was Marlon, who was around my age. There was Jackie and Tito, who were older. Randy and Janet were really young. They were, they were like, you know, uh, five, six years old, even if that. And Michael was about, if I remember, maybe nine, eight, nine, ten. And they were kind of in their own world. And they had a few cousins that came along. And I kind of uh, had the welcoming sign. And they kind of felt comfortable talking to me. So there was a market that we had at the corner of Havenhurst and Ventura called Gelson's. And they would ride their bikes in the parking lot of Gelson's. And when you would want to go get something to eat or something, you would go down there. So I kind of would run into him, got to know him. The next thing you know, after school, you're playing basketball at their house. And in the summer, they would either be swimming at their house or there was like a group of maybe about five of us that were friends. They were the father, you know, the father was very protective of them. And like, let's say in the afternoon, we would go over to play basketball we'd be shooting hoops in the, on the driveway and Michael would be sitting over in the corner of the, of the driveway off in the patio, just watching and very quiet. And as our relationships grew for about maybe three or four years, they, on, during the summer, because they had to go to school, they would do a tour. And one summer, Marlon, they were all uh, allowed to bring a friend. And Marlon said, hey, Michael, do you want to go? We're going to go to Vegas. We're going to go. We went to a few like places. Uh, I remember Vegas. I remember we went to Madison Square Garden, the Forum in L.A. And when we were in Vegas, we were there for three weeks because they played the MGM Grand. And my greatest memory was that I stayed in the room with Marlon. All the, all the family was on the floor. Michael was very, you know, very quiet as you see the, see him in life, or as he was, you know, kind of captured. He was always kind of uh, very much kept to himself, but very friendly. And Janet and Michael were, were the young ones. And the older brothers were kind of like the older brothers. So when it became showtime, you'd go down. And if you've ever seen a show in Vegas, whether it's Frank Sinatra or anybody, the the orchestra starts to hit the, the timpanis and da, 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 and they go, ladies and gentlemen, the Jackson Five. And <laughs> just like you would see them on Ed Sullivan or show, here they'd come out and, you know, they'd be in their glitter outfits and stuff like that. So instead of standing there, uh, one day someone said, why don't you do something? And I said, well, what can I do? They said, here's Michael's microphone cord. And in those days, they carried a microphone cord with a line, uh, you know, a microphone with a cord to it. Yeah. And I would sit there, and when he would go out and walk around and do stuff, he'd feed it out. And when he would come back, he'd pull it back in. 
And I did that for the, you know, maybe for about three, three shows. And then, you know, you get at that age, you kind of get bored with it. And they just, you know, they do their shows and stuff. And they, then you go back and you go run around and you play. You're too young to be in the, in the casino. And we'd find things to do or, you know, we terrorize the floor. And back in uh, Encino, where I grew up in the summer, they would swim over at our house. Uh, we would hang out, watch TV. There were no video games in those days. We'd play baseball, football. And uh, they were normal kids, just like you or I. They were, uh, but they had an incredible ability to create music. And uh, it was, they were, they were untouched because, you know, in those days, people really didn't swarm over stars. It wasn't, uh, you know, Sonny and Cher lived up the street. And you'd see them drive down and you'd wave hi. <laughs> and it was, you know, in L.A., when you grew up, it would, wouldn't be weird to see Dean Martin or somebody sitting at a bar when you walked in a restaurant or, you know, it was a very small city. But the Jacksons were probably, and when I, to just fast forward, when I became a hairdresser, they had the album, The Jacksons, where they're all on the cover. And I was good with textured hair. And at that time, they were wearing the big natural froze. And I came came in and helped them pick it out. And I used to sometimes hand them their stuff when they'd get ready for the show. So I did that album cover. And as we got older, you know, they became very uh, isolated. Uh, They couldn't walk in public anymore uh, without a security. And Michael went off into his world. And, um, you know, you grow up. That's basically what happens. But, uh, you know, when I've now lived uh, 11 years in Chicago, so I w- my uh, last residence was in Calabasas in Los Angeles. And sometimes I'd go down to the market uh, near the commons and I would see Marlon or I would say, you know, hey, how's it going? And they, you know, it's no different than seeing somebody that you grew up with. And yeah, you're good. I'm good. What's up? Yeah. And, and see you later. That's an amazing story, Michael. Thank you for that. You've spoken about pushing hair around in your dad's um, hairdressers. How did you then get into film? Do you remember your first memories of first getting into the business? To really go quickly, I graduated uh, beauty school. You go there for a year. My dad bought me a little comb and scissor, and I had it around my neck. Uh, That was kind of the thing when you became a hairdresser. The movie Shampoo came out. Uh, with Warren Beatty, and a lot of people don't even know of that movie, but if you would get it on uh, streaming, it's an incredible film. Julie Christie, uh, uh, Warren Beatty, and it, it's he plays a hairdresser. It's the, supposedly the true story about Gene Shacob from Beverly Hills. And um, I was going around, and my dad said, do you want to go right into film, or do you want to do television? What do you want to do? I said, no, I want to learn how to cut hair. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, he didn't feel it was a great idea for me to work for him, uh, that I should, I had to go learn how to become a hairdresser and learn how to cut hair. And then if I would become good enough, I could work for him. And we were walking in Beverly Hills and he met me for lunch and he said, uh, where did you go? I said, I went to the Vidal Sassoon's to apply for a job. And he said, well, how'd you do? He, there's 200 people on the waiting list. 
And he says, okay, well, did you leave your name? I said, yes. We turn around, we walk around the corner, and suddenly I hear this man yell, Bill White. <laughs> and it was Vidal Sassoon. And Vidal Sassoon comes over and he said to my dad, they hug each other, they're talking. He says, look at Michael, he's grown up. And he looks at my comb and scissor and he said, uh, oh, you're one of us now. And I said, I just got my hair license. He says, well, why aren't you working for me? I said, I can't get a job. And he said, come with me. And he walked me upstairs. He introduced me to the manager and I started the next day. And I spent six years at Vidal Sassoon on Rodeo um, under people like Henry Abel and Sally Abel and Lee Tanaka, Christopher Brooker, all the people that came from London and New York that created the Rodeo Salon. And I learned how to cut hair and do the things that really became the new Hollywood. And I first created a foundation of learning how to, how to become good at what you do. And I went from there to work for that Jerry Cusenza, who had started Sebastian. She approached me. And at that time, it was I Want My MTV. And I started doing music videos. I did Pat Benatar's, a few of Pat Benatar's. I did uh, Tom Petty. I, you know, uh, Brian Adams. I went through a few uh, years of doing that. But I created a clientele of a lot of Hollywood clients. And one day a woman came in and needed a perm. And I turned around. It was Sally Fields. So one day I get a phone call saying, would you, I need you to come uh, to Texas and I need my hair burned. They put me on a plane. I went there. I've already now experienced the videos and uh, commercials. And I came home and I, my father, who had part-time done television and film, but was more involved in the salon, but, you know, he carried a card and he, you know, uh, would go in and do a guest star on Johnny Carson. His clients were Shirley MacLaine, uh, Anne Margaret, and all these women. So he kind of was, at that time, we would call it personal. So uh, when I came back, I said, I think I want to do film. I really liked it. So one of my clients was Rafaela De Laurentiis from the De Laurentiis family. The father was Dino De Laurentiis, who did King Kong and created uh, an incredible empire. And she said, do you want to go do a film in Indiana with uh, Sam Elliott and Cloris Leachman? And I said, okay. And I went there. And it was a uh, Christmas film called Prancer, which became a classic that they play every year on uh, AMC. And uh, I came back and they said, how'd you like it? And I said, I had a lot of fun. Well, we're sending you now, if you want to, to Mexico City. We have this young actress that we need to have. She doesn't want a Hollywood hot rollers hairdresser. She wants a salon hairdresser. And I said, and she wants her hair blow dried and, and done, you know, kind of with the new way women are wearing their hair. I said, oh, great. So I get on a plane. I go down to uh, Mexico City and it ends up to be the original Total Recall. And I walk into a room and facing another area is a young lady. And they say, uh, Sharon Stone, Michael White. Wow. And that was my first big picture. And I was her personal and Rachel Tinkerton's personal 
on Total Recall. From there, it just became a catalyst to uh, snowballing from going from movie to movie. Uh, and I was very fortunate that I, my timing was right, that there was a new guard coming in. The young actors that were coming up uh, and the young actresses wanted, they wanted salon hairdressers. They wanted uh, Sally Hirschberger. They wanted, you know, Fernando Romero. They wanted people from Beverly Hills. So they're, they're, they don't do that, but they do cut them. So they would, they knew me and they would I kind of interacted with them. And that's how I got referred to some of the movies that I ended up doing. And then it becomes a progression after that of relationships. So it was Sharon Stone was my first really big moment in the business. So you're talking about cultivating relationships there. And from what I can see, correct me if I'm wrong, the most the most longstanding relationship you've had through the industry is with yourself and Tom Cruise. How did you come to meet? Was that a referral like the others? Um, I was doing a film called The Color of Night, Jane March. Uh, she did the movie called The Lover. The producers brought me on to do Jane. Bruce Willis was the male lead. And I, it was a big film, huge film for those days. Richard Rush was the director who had directed The Stuntman. And the studios were watching it and people were kind of Bruce Willis, Planet Hollywood. Uh, people today don't know about that. They know there's still one in London, I believe. Yeah. But Planet Hollywood was owned by Bruce Willis, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And all the actors would do the red carpet when they would launch them all around the world. So I kind of met Tom when he came to visit Bruce. And the makeup artist I was working with, Michelle Burke, was the Academy Award winner. And she had won the Academy Award for Dracula. So she was A-list. She was, you know, kind of uh, getting all the phone calls. And she got called to do interview with the vampire. And she, the, she didn't have a hairdresser that she had chosen yet. And they were doing the test. And she said, do you want to come with me and uh, do the test? And I said, sure. And it was Tom Cruise. And we were over at Stan Winston's uh, workshop, which is now uh, Legacy, you know, because Stan has passed. Sure. Uh, and um, Tom walked into the room. How are you doing? My name is Tom Cruise. Da, da, da. My wife. Uh, full of life. And I did the tests. And then they casted a young guy named Brad Pitt. So now Brad Pitt comes into the test. Well, Tom was wearing a wig, but Brad didn't want to wear a wig. He wanted to have his hair done every day. And if you remember him, he had long hair in that. Yeah. But he wanted it kind of, they wanted it kind of natural and unkempt, so it had to be blow-dried. So Tom, being one of the producers and Geffen and stuff, said, well, why don't we put Michael on uh, Brad? So I not only I wasn't a personal, I, I had keyed the movie. Uh, Jan Archibald from London, who owns the London Wig Company, was the department head. And uh, I took care of Brad. And then if I wasn't doing Brad, I would help out whether it would be uh, that they needed more help with Tom or a double for Tom or we had huge days of background. We were in Paris. And we came back to L.A. and we had a month of pickups. And in that month of pickups, 
Tom said, you're doing me. And I had to bring somebody in to do Brad. So that's where my relationship started with Tom. And after that, Brad went right to the movie Seven. Now, Brad, uh, there's a very famous uh, Rolling Stone magazine cover with Brad. And he has long, blonde, bleached hair. And that was the way his hair was before we did the movie Seven. And I was brought on to that movie by Brad. And Brad and I and David Fincher, and it was his first film, were sitting in a room. And he said, David Fincher said, if you ruin my actor, you're never going to work in Hollywood again. Wow. And not saying it seriously, but... You know, when you're young, you're kind of going, okay. And after we discussed, he said, we came up with the idea of a, of a young James Dean. So Brad agreed to it. And I went up to his house. And it took about five hours to cut his hair from about that length to the haircut I created for him for seven. And what ended up happening was, as I got shorter and shorter, I kind of had the technique of being uh, a motivated hair cutter, and I knew all the techniques, so I started chopping it up, which, you know, in, in hair cutting in those days, you know, really didn't happen. Uh, it started to, you know, become a trend as time went on. The messier it looked, the better it looked. So I went in there and I kind of, shattered it like you would take a piece of glass and throw it on the ground. And I, tur I put bleach on tinfoil, and I turned his head, head upside down, and I shoeshined it. I left it on for about 10 minutes. We washed it off, and that's how he got the blonde tips and the short hair. And that haircut, I think, still, in a lot, in mostly every, anything in my history, is one of my, my iconic moments of creating a character uh, for a movie where you really did a complete uh, makeover. I'll stop there. You continue the questions. But that's how the Tom Cruise relationship began. I see. It was on um, uh, Interview with the Vampire. I think one of the shows that everyone would want to work on is Mission Impossible because of the international element of it. And I feel like you must have had some amazing times and some difficult times traveling around the world on it. Are there any moments that stand out as magic memories from it? I was in the Burj and uh, we were on the 160th floor and he was two floors below us. So you would go down, do your last looks. Even though he was outside, uh, you would, you know, there were, in our business, there's always a last look. Even if you're not touching the actor, it's, it's the eye contact. And I had also, I was doing Jeremy Renner. I was doing Paula Patton. I was the hair supervisor. I pretty much had my hands into everybody. But I was on that 160th floor looking down at him, looking up at the crane camera and the helicopter, two helicopters filming. And I watched him swing from the left of the Burj below me to the right. And if I could, if I could close, I could close my eyes right now and remember it. And um, I did the junket for Mission Four, 
So we traveled, we did 17 cities in 21 days around the world. And we went back to Dubai for the premiere. And we went back up into the Burj. And he did a shot of him kind of near the edge of a window. And uh, one of the, those type of things just are, you know, things you just don't forget. Also too, he took a very famous picture of him sitting on the top of the radio tower. I've seen that, yeah. uh, By David James. And I remember we we were always around that 160th floor and they came up with the idea of the of the shot, and he had no fear. So he went up through the tower. There's ladders that go up there, and David James down below got in the helicopter. The helicopter went up. Tom popped out of the top of it and sat up there, and that's where the picture came from. So you could kind of look up and see it, and I like said to myself, I'd be, I, I'd be, I would passed out i mean but he has he has no fear you know when you see the x games and you know and people would say oh he didn't do this every time or any time i was on a movie he did his own stunts uh when we did jack reacher he drove the car uh when we did uh whatever it was he did it he got ratcheted he got thrown he was outside the burge his stunt guys set up the, the, you know, the scene. They safety check everything. And then they bring him out and they gear him up. He rehearses incredibly. He just does it to perfection and with no fear. And the one thing that I kind of learned from him was uh, the no fear. Because if you really convince yourself to not have fear, you can do anything. I can't imagine a more difficult franchise to work on as head of hair than Mission Impossible. Was there plenty of times that there was a stunt going on with people hanging off of helicopters and things and you're behind a monitor trying to get in screaming, I will need to you know, get involved? Um, you, you know, uh, the most intense thing is there was the fight, uh, which was on a set, which was in the interior of the Burj. And it was with Jeremy Renner and Tom. And they, and Paula, I think was in it. And they're in, they're, they're fighting. So let's say Tom goes over to hit this guy and comes back and his hair is in his face. But in the master, the hair is not in the face. So, you know, the, what your job really is is to go right there and say to the director and the script supervisor that that's not going to cut to the master. Are you going to use that cut that he just did? Oh, uh, yes, we are. Well, we have to do it again because you won't. I'm sure you've been to films where you go and then they cut back and forth. And one time the actor, the actress has a hair here and then they don't. So, uh, you, you know, when you're doing action movies or you're doing movies that are, you know, have stunts going or matching, you can't you can't say, oh, I'm not going to say anything because when they go to the editing room, you're going to be the one that they're not going to be happy with. So one of the biggest things that you have to keep in mind is, are they going to be able to cut it together? So uh, believe it or not, that part or that hair or the wind blowing or when they get out of a car, if they run their hands through their hair and some hair falls down, you've got to re- you've got to keep the continuity on that. 
otherwise, suddenly they're walking in the door and they're perfect. So uh, it is it is stressful when you're on these big films. There's a lot of accountability. You're accountable. It goes if if they yell cut print, your name is on there. And if suddenly the editor sends back notes saying I'm you know a lot of this stuff doesn't match, they're going to sit you down and say you know we've got a problem. And uh, there's a word called unacceptable. I've heard of so, it. So <laughs> yeah. I'd love to know if I wanted to get into hair for the people listening to this, what advice would you give for people who probably listen to your stories here and the life you've lived through the movies? Um, Hollywood is your playground. What would your advice be to them, Michael? That they first become a good, first they become a licensed cosmetologist because you in, in the unions in IATSE, um, unless you're on a waiver, meaning maybe you came from Europe or something, you have to have a license. In, in Europe, there's the apprenticeship program. Uh, they start as trainees and they work their way up, but they don't have what we call a cosmetology license. You can't be in the, in the hair unions in the United States without that license. So I tell people, go to beauty school, get your license, learn the basics, you know, how to cut a straight line, how to blow dry a head of hair. And if you get done with that, and you take the, we have a test and you get your license and you have the passion for it and you really like it, then you should, I always believe that you should go try it out. And whether it's in a salon or whether it's um, finding a commercial to do or print, because I, my way in the door was I hooked onto photographers. And there was a guy named Jonathan Exley who used to shoot Mick Jagger, everybody. And I met him and I said, could I do one of your shoots? I do hair. And he said, do you have a book? I said, yes. And I showed him my book. And he said, and I said, and I won't charge you. I said, I'd be just happy to do it for the picture. And he said, okay. And one thing led to another, which led to another, which led to another. I always say one and one equals two, two and two equals four, four and four equals eight. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. If you don't knock on people's doors, because they're all out there. And I love when someone calls me eight times, I'll call them back and say, what would you like to do? <laughs> and I think persistence, you know, you're not going to walk out and go, you know, to a studio gate and say, I, you know, I'm here. Uh, it's about relationships. So you have to, whether it's by trying to get an agent, by trying to find a magazine that, and find the name of the photographer and contact the photographer, because now on Instagram and social media, you can contact people very easily. In my day, you had to find them. Yeah. And I used to walk up to people and just say, hi, my name is Michael White. I'd love to work with you. And my famous line is, no's a complete sentence. <laughs> and if they would say no, I would say, thank you very much. I'll see you next week. If they would say, well, when are you available? What do you, what's your story? I knew I had them. I, I knew I had them. So I never, I never uh, took defeat. And it's not an easy you know, road to uh, 
walk down. And, uh, you know, there's a saying, you know, they, they might call your name. And if they don't, thank you very much. But that's just means you're not supposed to be there. And, uh, you know, there's someone out there that's going to say, you know, okay, I'll give you the break. I'll give you the chance. Or, you know, I used to call, uh, I used to get phone numbers through people of very top rated or A-list hairstylists. And I used to call and I used to call or I knew where they, you know, I knew someone that knew them. And maybe it took me a year or two, but I finally got in touch with them. And I remember one of my mentors, Barbara Lorenz, said, you, you bugged me so much that so I'm going to get you to stop bugging me. I'm <laughs> going to get you a day of work. And she, uh, down the line, would give me films that she couldn't do. And you have to find it. You have to get an education. You don't become a writer unless you learn how to write. You don't become a filmmaker unless you go to film school. You have to learn how to work a camera. Uh, whether you learn on your own or whether you have someone teach you. You see these young kids that find these guys that go around and make these little short films and they work for nothing. They work for food. And, you know, you have to get out there. The phone will ring when the time comes. Now to wrap it up, we're going to do our little red carpet rookies in the actor's studio quickfire style. And it's my own little ode to an actor's studio. And so just, I'm going to say the question, Michael, and just say whatever comes straight into your head. Are you ready? Ready. Number one, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Take my ego, put it in my back pocket and sit on it. <laughs> Number two, do you have a favorite film? Yes, I do. It's a wonderful life. And the second part of that question is, if our listeners were to watch one of your films tonight, what do you think they should watch? Jerry Maguire. Great choice. Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed every day for an early call time, if any at all? Passion. Number four, which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours? I'd want to be an editor. Hmm, it's a common choice. Number five, if you could work with one person, living or dead, who would it be? Paul Newman. Number six, what is a book that everybody should read? Open. Do you know who, who, do you know who that's about? Open? No, I don't. Tell me more. Uh, Andre Agassi. Oh, okay. Very cool. It's his autobiography. It's his story. And finally, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank? I would thank uh, Michelle Burke. Anyone else? I would thank, uh, well, of course, we all thank God, but I would thank uh, Rafaela De Laurentiis and Buzz Feichens. Fantastic. And on that note, we're going to have to end it there. I'm sure we could have spoken for many more hours of incredible stories, but thank you so much for Michael for joining us. Excellent advice and tales from one of the most talented and most in regard Hollywood stylist. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. And anybody can find me on Instagram. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. And of course, any support via our Patreon page or merch is amazing. So if you'd like to help, please do head to redcarpetrookies.com and follow the links. If you'd like regular updates of what's going on, you can also follow Red Carpet Rookies on Instagram and Facebook or RC Rookies Pod on Twitter. Have a great day and we'll see you next time.